G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation and heard on your community radio station. The growth in inequality is not exclusively an Australian issue. The staggering growing disparity between the richest and the poorest in our society But the increase in the rate of social security payments during COVID, which lifted tens of thousands of people above the poverty line, showed that returning payments to almost half the Henderson poverty line is a political choice. Before the last federal election, there was overwhelming evidence that a majority of Australians supported a rise in the rate of payments, But the Federal Labor Government did not honour this expectation, with the Minister for Social Security, Amanda Rishworth, quoted as saying, Difficult decisions mean responsible cost of living relief with an economic dividend, was the government's priority. No change, despite what the Anti-Poverty Centre calls abhorrently low welfare payments, a housing crisis, and spiralling living costs. Over the next two weeks, we explore the Federal Government's scorecard in this area through an extended interview with Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre located in Canberra. But first, some union news. At the end of 2022, the Spitzer dispute came to a dramatic impasse with the Fair Work Commission ruling against the towage company's threatened lockout of workers operating towboats servicing the majority of Australian ports. In the long-running dispute over what is considered a threat to worker safety and the life-work balance of the industry, Switzer, a subsidiary of Mertz, the largest haulage company in the world, has gone into 2023 as intractable as ever. Dave Ball, Assistant Secretary of the MUA Victorian branch, had this to say. It's really not good at all. It's very dark and um, we've got some high-level meetings happening this week regarding where to from here. We've got until halfway through May before either party can take protected industrial action again and uh, where that's going to lead, I'm not sure. Spitzer are, are not moving on the negotiations every time we go to a negotiation we think we're about half a dozen areas apart and we leave the negotiation a dozen areas apart so they're really uh not negotiating in good faith would be my call and i just uh we're going to have to work out where to go to well, from here it seems pretty clear they want the agreement arbitrated that was that was their tactic to start with and that appears to be where they're heading heading now and yeah i just think that and the fact that the system allows this to occur, do you imagine if we just said, no, we're not going to the table, we're not going to negotiate in good faith? Well, we've been we've been a fair work commission. Um, so it's just, it just seems to be this company are just manipulating the system, which they did do to start with, manipulating the system. 
including the new IR laws, eh? I mean, the new IR laws. Yes, so the changes to the new IR laws are not going to be very good for a union like us where we have high union density, um, commitment to the union and, uh, you know, solid members who will stand up for their rights and do the right thing. And, you know, with the, with the Commission's ability to terminate um, industrial action after I think three months is the new law, they can stop all industrial action if, if both parties fail to get an agreement and then they'll arbitrate an outcome, which, you know, in this case, or who knows? So it's going to be a challenging year ahead with regards to Fair Work Australia. And, you know, here we are in, in a country right now. It's the first time in a while here in Australia where we've had a federal Labor government and a Victorian Labor government. And uh, I think it's now or never for the unions to... Uh, make a bit of impact on some of those industrial relation laws and, you know, lobby the Labor government to, to for, you know, in the interest of workers' rights. French strikes over pension changes. It might surprise Australians to know that there are rolling strikes across France at the moment over the changes from January 19th to pension arrangements with minimum retirement age moving from 62 to 64 Surprised because in Australia, when the retirement age went from 65 to 70, there was really just an intake of breath and very little action. You will remember it was part of the Morrison government's push to change the perception of the age pension from a right to a payment given to a bunch of leaners. The French don't see it that way. Over one million people took to the streets nationwide in the first day of protests at the reforms on January the 19th, according to figures from the Ministry of Interior. The CGT Federation, which unite workers in the chemical, ports and docks and energy industries, have called for a 72-hour strike on February the 6th. Workers from the energy sector have already agreed to join. The CGT Federation for Ports and Docks is calling for government to return the retirement age to 60 for all, lowering to 55 for more strenuous jobs. Strike notices have been filed by the two ski lift unions, which also represent seasonal workers starting on January the 31st. Force Ouvrier will join the CGT, Confédération Générale du Travail, the union representing salaried workers, after nearly 100% of members voted for action in the ski lift sector over proposed pension reforms put forward recently by the government. We decided to call a strike during the February holidays because the claims will be better heard during this period, said Eric Becker, General Secretary of the Ski Lifts in Force Ouvrier. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. The Anti-Poverty Centre, which gives voice to those who have the lived experience of poverty, argues that raising income support payments is the fastest and most effective thing the Albanese government can do to reduce inequality and address entrenched disadvantage. I had the opportunity to speak with Kristen O'Connell from the Centre for an evaluation of the federal government's actions in the social security sphere. 
Over the next two weeks, we will explore the bureaucratic instruments that are now in play. I started by asking Kirsten about what are the signs that anything has changed? Yeah, I think it was incredibly cruel of the Prime Minister to politicise his own background and at the same time during the election while he was signalling to those of us who live on payments that he understands our lives, he also was very explicitly saying he would not raise the rate of job seeker in any particularly timely fashion and that they would only do things like that if you know the budget can supposedly afford it. So unfortunately, what we're seeing is exactly what the Prime Minister promised, that language around whether we can afford it or not is what we are seeing extremely regularly from the Prime Minister himself, from the Treasurer and from the Social Services Minister. So I think if there is any raise at all, it will be meagre. It probably won't keep us uh, even up to um, the level that we were before this extreme inflation. And I think it's yeah, it, as I said, really cruel and a lot of people are feeling very disillusioned and I've heard some welfare recipients say that they feel stupid for being tricked by the Prime Minister. That's the real impact of what he's been doing over the past year, in addition, obviously, to the actual material impact of us being less and less able to afford the absolute basics. Before the uh, budget came out, um, it was uh, something like $46 a day, which is almost half of the Henderson poverty line at 88. And this is without taking into account spiralling living costs as well as the growing housing crisis, right? Yes, it's $46 a day. Um, Another thing we'll hear quite often um, from the Labor Party at the moment is when there is an adjustment to payments to reflect inflation, which is a regular process that happens through in legislative requirement, that they will use the language of increase. Um, we will hear, and I believe we did hear at that time around the budget, that people on JobSeeker had had the largest increase. And that, as you say, is simply because of this enormous inflation. So that's right, that the payment is nearly half um, the poverty line. The poverty line that we currently have, the most recent one is from the middle of last year, um, does not as you say, account for these really extreme cost rises and particularly everyone at the moment who is having to move house is being hit really hard with rent increases, including some of us who haven't had to move house. So we have been hearing some statistics suggesting that rents have not been rising incredibly fast. But when you drill down into that, people in the lowest cost properties are having the biggest percentage increases. For example, my rent went up by uh, 25% six months ago, and there are more and more of us being forced to kind of go on the merry-go-round. <laughs> uh, so it's, it is, I, I, I just don't know. I'm at breaking point, and I don't know how folks are surviving. We know so many people are just ending up living in tents, living on couches. Um, I don't know how much more we can take. I was really interested in um, a quote that was given from Amanda Rishwood, who is the Minister for Social Security. And and you can understand why she would have this perspective, but it actually 
exposes exactly the mindset or the difference between a person who's in government of any persuasion and people who are actually experiencing the outcomes, which is, she said, difficult decisions mean responsible cost of living relief with an economic dividend. Um, deciding to keep people in deep poverty is actually a very easy decision for someone like her. It is not a difficult decision for rich people who do not get exposed to the challenges we face to decide that we just have to figure it out and somehow cope. It's really easy for them. They don't have to face the difficult decision of deciding, do I get milk or do I get bread? They don't have to face the difficult decision of, do I choose to fall behind on my rent or do I choose to fall behind on my electricity? It's also completely irresponsible to force people into that situation. There is no economic reason for forcing us to do this. They are laying blame for inflation on people on low incomes, even though we don't even have any money. They're suggesting that by giving people enough money to live, we will exacerbate the inflation problem. Now, the inflation problem exists without us having enough money to live. So clearly... <laughs> Uh, people on low incomes are not the cause of it. And regardless of whether people on low incomes were causing inflation, it's still no reason to force us to not have enough to live. We're not the ones who should pay the price of what is going on in the economy. Um, the government can afford to increase payments to the poverty line without making any other changes to the budget. But there are also, as lots of people have been talking about, plenty of places they could make savings. The superannuation tax concessions are eye-watering, far greater than the cost to the budget of the tax cuts that are coming, which are also more than enough to pay for every single social security payment to be lifted to the Henderson poverty line. So, you know, these would be really easy decisions for them to make. It was a disturbingly easy decision for Scott Morrison to make just a couple of years ago when he decided to lift um, a lot of people to the poverty line. So, it's very clear this has been done before. It can be done again. It is a political choice and it's, it's not a difficult one for them to make. Let's go to the changes to the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations uh, Social Security Arrangement. I mean, because uh, that uh, has a, a deep effect on a lot of people that are your members. Um, Workforce Australia. Now, Workforce Australia was actually put together by uh, Morris but it's been continued by um, Albanese's government. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, how it's playing out? Because I know that, that there were real concerns at the beginning, the point system that was being put into place, as well as the automation system. Uh, have they come to fruition, the outcomes that were believed to have happened? Yeah, and I'll start by saying we did urge the Labor Party not to vote for this, and whilst it was designed by the department while the coalition was in government, we expressed all of those concerns to Labor before it passed and they made the choice to vote for it. We think they are just as responsible for it because of that. Um, we did a huge amount of work after the election and before the rollout of Workforce Australia, which was on 1 July, um, trying to get changes from Minister Burke, trying to explain in more detail our concerns to him. Um, his reason for not accommodating those requests, despite acknowledging the validity of our concerns, was that it might affect provider viability. And I think, again, that just shows you where the government's priorities are and 
the kinds of easy decisions they're making about people's lives. Unfortunately, we sent a very detailed letter, uh, several thousand words, to the minister laying out all of our predictions about how things could harm people. And we saw the moment the system came in just rolling reports, both in the media and also from people that we support, those exact issues playing out. We're now seeing down, you know, six months later, there's less media attention, but we're hearing increasing reports from people about problems with how their provider is treating them, problems with having the required points um, accurately reflect their capacity and circumstances. Uh, being forced into pointless courses, again, which are honestly just beyond absurd. There was just an example this week that I can't even describe. It was somebody sent a photo of a training course that was explaining there are no freebies and gimmies in life. You have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is a training being given to an unemployed disabled person. Um, it's, yeah, unfortunately, as often is the case with these things, I often feel worried that I'm being a bit alarmist and then the things that we warn about get become even worse than what we predicted and, and that's what we've seen. So it's really disturbing that while the government is conducting an inquiry into Workforce Australia, um, have said that they need to go back to first principles on employment services, that they are continuing to punish people and give people payment suspensions in a system that they themselves know is, is not working. Well, it's fascinating to me to uh, uh, to look at the points-based activation system because it's quite bizarre. And I think that a lot of people who aren't involved in this system will find it bizarre. You will get 20 points per week of your 100 for the month of your work for the doll uh, from work for the doll, which means at the end of the month, you do have 80 points if you have done, if you've been required to do work for the doll. But you still then, as you say... Your basic, your ba but this is the problem, right? Because people are trying to figure out, and one of the concerns we raised is you've got people having this complex system at the beginning of the month have to try and plan out what are the things I'm going to have to do so that by the time I've got to report this stuff, I've hit that 100. The information about it is confusing. The a number of points assigned to different activities make no sense, do not reflect um, what might be common sense in terms of the value of the various activities people are doing. And also none of it accounts for the fact that sometimes uh, unexpected things might happen in your life. And so we have lots of people, actually one in five people have got some form of paid employment. So you might think, well, I've got shifts every week for the next four weeks. You get points for doing paid work. Um, so I know that I'm going to be doing that and then I'm going to do some study over here and I'm going to do some job applications over here and that'll get me to 100. And then, yes, as you say, you're sick, you lose your shift for whatever reason and suddenly you're at that point where you go, oh, shit, now, now I have to scramble to try and find something because I'm at the end of the month and I don't have the 100 points. And the information that you're able to refer to is really confusing. So we've got people doing work for the doll, enormous hours, no extra money. It's like 42 cents an hour it works out to... People are hungry and... And stressed. Stressed, hungry, often working in abusive environments for free and at the end of the day still have to time, find the time and energy to put in job applications because it doesn't matter how many points you get, you still have to put in a minimum of four job applications per month. And again, some people don't have easy access to a computer, so where's your time to go to the library to do that if you're doing work for the dog? Um, it's a just, it is a Kafkaesque 
system. And, um, yeah, people are really struggling with it in a variety of ways. But we've seen nothing improve from the old system and, and the point system has made things worse. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are chatting with Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre for a critique of the Albanese government's approach when it comes to social security. In a survey done by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, a lot of the people who answered the survey said that harm was actually being designed into the system. And then Senator Janet Rice said that this particular points-based activation system, as well as Workplace Australia, it was based off a broken premise that if you don't tick all the right boxes, you don't deserve to have your basic needs covered or a roof over your head. That's right. The whole thing is rooted in paternalism and a disdain for poor people and, and an expect an assumption that if you don't have enough money to live, that you are to blame for that and that you have made choices that have put you there and that you need to have a stick applied to you so that you learn how to be a person who contributes in the right way to society. It totally... Uh, ignores the enormous amount of unpaid work that is going on by people who often may have responsibilities that they have to do that are unpaid that prevent them from being able to easily find paid work. Of, of course, there is about 100,000 um, parents on JobSeeker. Um, there are lots of people who are carers for adults on JobSeeker. Um, there are people who have commitments that they really can't move, who then, therefore, when you go to an employer and you say, well, I can work, these hours because I've got to do caring at other times. They say, well, sorry, I need you to be flexible or I need you to work some of the hours that you're saying you're not available. And that really is something that we're punishing people for. Of course, unemployment is also designed into the economy. It is a choice governments make. They want there to be about half a million to a million unemployed people at any given time to maintain downward pressure on wages. So their choice to do the job of keeping downward pressure on wages they are then punishing people for being put into that job. And it is a job. And as you said, uh, a variety of people are actually uh, digital using digital services, right? And that the idea for the job agencies was that they were going to focus on more disadvantaged, unemployed people, right? There was this disgusting and frightening story coming out of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union of a person who uh, was talking to their person on the phone and they were being baited and uh, uh, belittled. And in fact, the person was saying things like, you just think you're special. And uh, also brought up a past um, suicide attempt, which means that, of course, this person has all the personal's private information. And then they started to use it as a, a method of undermining that person's self-confidence because that points to not only the unaccountability of that person, uh, too, that this person is an untrained person in relation to a very anxious recipient of services. This person was a very anxious person, right? This is a very dangerous situation. Yeah, and again, unfortunately, um, a lot of people hear stories like this and they're quite, they can be quite shocking stories and people think, oh, that's an outlier and, and it isn't, you know. Um, we talk to people, yeah, we just talk to people all the time who are being um, abused to varying degrees, but a lot of it's very severe. It is very dangerous and we talk about, we try um, to talk often about the fact that uh, 
poverty is not the only factor in the enormously high suicide rate among people who are on Centrelink payments. People who've been on Centrelink payments for two years or more have nearly doubled the suicide rate than the general population. Um, there are a lot of people on payments because they do have disabilities related to their mental health. So it is an extra vulnerable population. Um, I have no doubt that this is this kind of behaviour has cost people their lives, but we won't ever hear about those people. We won't ever know um, about those people. But we do know, or I know, <laughs> when I get contacts of support from people who are suicidal, that often they will talk about treatment by either a job agency or by a work for the doll host site is the thing that is driving them to have very severe suicidal ideation. Um, but on the point you were making as well about the idea that these face-to-face -face providers are supposed to be um, focusing on more so-called vulnerable people, um, as you said, there are these people are not qualified. There are no minimum requirements for any form of qualification um, in the department tendering process. On top of that, we saw in the few weeks leading up to the rollout of this system, a dramatic change in the number of people who went into face-to-face -face services. In response to lobbying from the employment services industry, they changed from forecasting around 400, 430,000 people going into face-to-face -face with the remainder kind of 200,000 on the caseload going into digital, to having that whole 600-odd thousand people in face-to-face. That means people who I work with, for example, who are, you know, young, very technologically competent, have access to technology, living in a metropole, like in a, in a major city, um, totally capable, like people who've got degrees, completely capable of self-managing, which is the language they use, absolutely should not be in a with a face-to-face -face provider. They do not, not only do they not need any support, they don't receive anything that could be considered valuable. And yet these types of folks are, in face-to-face -face services, the providers are cashing in on those people as much as they are on the so-called more vulnerable. Um, the whole thing is, again, it is just geared towards making sure the providers make money and they justify that in all sorts of ways. It is a, it's a, it's a brutality machine. It's part of the poverty machine. It's got its own special um, cruelty that's built into it. There's no apparent oversight going on here. Also, if you're a rural uh, recipient, long distances are being required. Yes, that's right. And, and this is the thing that we saw, um, particularly at the rollout, people were being assigned to job agencies hundreds and hundreds of kilometres away or job agencies that might have only been 100 kilometres away but involved three hours of public transport each way and waiting long times because the bus schedule was so infrequent that you couldn't possibly do the round trip in less than nine hours um, just to go to an appointment. And it was absolutely horrific. And if we had not been able to get strong media reporting about that, we would have had people being cut off payments for reasons like this. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or at your favourite podcast site. And you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by ringing 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. And until next time, stick together and keep safe.
for watching Young Life Shape. In my keys, solutions and remedies. Enemies becoming friends when bitterness ends. This is my church. This is my church. Thank you.